Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio, this is True Crime Uncensored with the legendary Burl Bear. I'm fact-checker Mark Boyer. The following program is produced with great indifference and... Angst by Magic Matt Allen for the Outlaw Radio Network. Today we're going to grill like a swordfish our host, Merle Bear. <laughs> That's right. The church loves me. The church loves you. <laughs> Merle, how That's you doing? It's a Catholic joke. <laughs> <laughs> how are you doing, Mr. Merle Bear? I'm alive and well, much to my surprise and the delight of millions. Uh, it's not well, easy being a award-winning true crime writer. Of course, I hardly know because I've only won a couple of awards. Uh, Some people have won so many. But what do you have to water? What do I have to water? My legend. (laughs) I was up all night combing what's left of my hair. (laughs) Uh, So, Burl, you uh, you, uh, start out as a fantabulous rock and roll roll DJ. Minding my own business, playing the hits for the kids. Out there somewhere in the I actually Seattle started area. at a, a uh, radio station that has less power than my hairdryer. KTEL in Walla Walla, 250 watts of power. Which basically, which reached next door. In yeah, 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 yeah. yeah but uh, it was like, uh, what was the frequency? In, in, infrequent. <laughs> uh, it was right by the glove box in your car. For easy access. You know, ah. That's where you turn the dial. All the way, so it was AM? Yeah, of course. Uh, ah. FM in those days was limited to uh, classical music stations, which, of course, had a rating... <laughs> of less <laughs> than yes. zero. One. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> then you, uh, then you, you gradually moved into advertising and, uh, and promotion. And a small, a small promotion. Uh, rental on the lake. Uh, I had an interesting landlord when I lived on uh, Lake Washington. Yeah. He said, luxury, furnished, on the lake. That sounds like a good deal. So I moved in, Mm -hmm. and it was furnished. In the middle of the night, I I thought I heard burglars in the house. I was a little worried, but then it was all quiet. I got up in the morning. My furniture was different. Well, that's interesting. About a week later, heard the same sound, got up again in the morning. Furniture was different. <laughs> what the deal was is the guy had several furnished units, but not enough furniture to go around. Ah. So someone complained, I don't have a couch in my unit. He goes, no problem. You have couch tomorrow. He come to my apartment, remove my couch, give it to the other guy, and put it like straight back chair where my couch had been. I would complain. And then a week or so later, all of a sudden, someone else in furniture shows up in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, a lovely little scam going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, it was a fascinating, Captain. But the, the problem, of course, is that I moved from uh, that unit, which was on Lake Washington, over to Queen Anne Hill, which is quite a ways, you know, it was quite different. And I worked until 2 o'clock in the morning playing the hits for the kids. We were up at 2 o'clock in the morning, probably still out of their minds. And uh, I forgot where I lived, and I drove all the way to the apartment on Lake Washington, just in time to see the landlord moving out some furniture. <laughs> oh, I don't live here anymore. And uh, drove back to Queen Anne Hill. I see. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> so you you, uh, you go to, you're doing... Uh, out of my mind. Advertising and... Well, yeah, because, you know, when you work at a radio station, you learn yeah. how to do all sorts of exciting things. Right. 
Uh, one of the exciting things I learned from Big Jim Martin at KJR in uh, Seattle was you tape record the first hour of your show or first two hours of your show without ever giving the exact time. 20 past the hour, quarter past the hour. You save that tape. And then at 4 o'clock in the morning, you play it, leave the station, and go to the Blue Eagle for an early breakfast. <laughs> Which is, of course, horrifyingly illegal and a violation. But the FCC is closed on the weekends. Who's going to let them know? Okay. And uh, that's why actually we did that. We would record the first two hours. And, <laughs> and then play it as the last two hours. Yeah. Some people, boy, that's familiar. That must be having deja vu. <laughs> well, I worked there at Seattle Radio, and then uh, my dad in Walla Walla, Washington, the land that time forgot, uh, Called up and wanted me to come to Walla Walla and, and work selling structural steel and industrial gases so he could retire. Being suicidal, I, I, I took that offer, went to Walla Walla, and uh, I was working for Pat O'Day in Seattle at KYYX, or as he would call it, KYX. And, and uh, for the listener, Pat O'Day is uh, legendary. legendary program director. Uh, I think five-time winner of the Program Director of the Year Award from the National Association of Self-Congratulatory Radio Programmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no different than any other award show, is <laughs> yes. it? Yes. Uh, and so um, they had a trade-out with the airlines. And so I would fly back to Seattle on Friday afternoons and pre-record enough voice tracks for two radio stations, KYX and KXA. KXA used to be a religious station. Or they became a religious station. Give me that old-time religion. Give yes. me that old-time religion. Uh, when when we were doing it with music, uh, it was called Old Gold 77 KXA. And we played all the oldies. But in order to generate significant income, it became a religious station. And so it went from Old Gold to Oh God, uh, just overnight, like that. And then they fired my cousin because he wasn't a Christian, which I think is a violation of federal law. <laughs> I believe that's the case. <laughs> yeah, I think if we would have acted quickly, my uh, cousin Mike would own KXA. But uh, he didn't know that you could complain <laughs> about being, we're sorry, this is a Christian radio station, you're not Christian, you gotta go. You're Jewish. Out. Yes. Out, out. Out, damn spot. Yes, we think it's 70 AD, you're out. We'll let you back in 1844. Considered a vacation. Okay. So there I was, buying my own business in Walla Walla, Washington. And I get a phone call from a guy named Jim Nelly. Now, Jim Nelly is uh, infamous in radio broadcasting. He used to be program director of KTAC in Tacoma. And uh, he was a fine, fine gentleman, unless he took a drink. I see. All it took was one drink. And there's a movie like this with, uh, what's her name, stars in it, where she has one drink and she goes nuts. Uh... <laughs> Well, it wasn't the last weekend with Ray, Ray Milan. No, no, we're talking much later, you know, but, you know, in the 70s, 80s. Not in any nice. event, uh, he would go nuts. Uh, and that caused quite a few problems with his reputation. Uh, in any event, he had KUJ Radio in Walla Walla, Washington, and he wanted to sell it. He said, Burl, here's the deal. I will pay you real money, and what you do is, I call you on the phone, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're selling structural steel or industrial gases. When you get that call, you drop everything, drive to the radio station, and go on the air and make it sound like a real radio station. Because <laughs> he's, you know, he's paying these people, you know, 25 cents an hour or whatever to play the hits. Right. 
And so I did that. And the goal was so he could sell it for big bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sold the AM and the FM, which didn't exist yet. <laughs> but he did have a construction permit for a massive amount of money. And uh, he ran away. <laughs> he left and uh, stopped drinking and be- bought a radio started smoking pot and uh, bought a radio station in Humboldt County. <laughs> well, okay. And, uh, and did he uh, remediate you at any Yes, uh, yes. Uh, he did pay me. I was quite fine. Oh, and man, then... That's... The people who bought the radio station hired me right. to more or less uh, program direct the, uh, the thing. It was fun. And then uh, <laughs> I walked into the radio station at the, this time, and a fellow named Tom Hodgins was on the air with a name like Luke Warm or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> they did have names like that, but they said, Wee Willie Winky, uh, Luke Warm. Mm-hmm. But they didn't let him talk. Right? All they let him do is play the music. At the top of the hour, they had a pre-recorded, you know, station identification. Yeah, right. I said, well, that doesn't sound like very entertaining radio, not to let the guy talk middays. So I said, uh, coming out of this break, I want you to talk. You know, just do no-. He sounded fine. Yeah. I said, okay, from now on, you talk. Guess who owns that radio station? He does. <laughs> he now owns that radio station ah. and several others. And we became kind of uh, partners buying, ra- buying and selling radio stations, which okay. was kind of fun. I like that. That's how I financed my trip to Israel in uh, 1999 by uh, selling a radio station. <laughs> I think it was a Spanish language station in Yakima, something like that. It was great fun. So, so um, yes. So, what what leads you to the saint? Ah, well, I was 16 years old, minding my own business in Wahai, Walla Walla High School. Yeah, I, I doubt that, but go on. Yes, uh, my friend David Benfield uh, lends me a book entitled uh, The Saint in New York. He said, read this. Tell me what you think. I read it. I said, oh, that was entertaining. He says, well, I got one I think that's more entertaining. It's called Saint's Getaway. Well, I read that one, and I thought it was hysterically clever. Very clever. It was almost like a satire on action-adventure books. Right. Because it was written in two styles simultaneously. One would always start off in a style that would appeal tremendously to any 16-year-old boy. I mean, just bam, right off the bat, incredible action. There's one story uh, in the book, uh, St. versus Scotland Yard, that starts off with a scream. The scream peals through the night, where the saint has actually been at a wild party, and he doesn't want to drive, so he's asleep on the hood of his giant uh, ah, car. So it's the car hood, it's the yeah, horn. Yeah, and no, it's not the horn, it's actually it is a man screaming. That wakes him up in his pitch-black darkness, right? And he hears this guy, someone running through the woods, and I could hear another set up, you know, chasing him. And through the clearing, out comes this guy. He's obviously been beaten, his clothes torn, he just looks like walking death. And then running up behind him, you know, to grab him, is this giant African guy, wearing only a loincloth. And this is in England, you know, <laughs> on the countryside. Mm-hmm. What is this, you know, giant African wearing only a loincloth, doing, you know, coming out of a mist, chasing this beaten man. So the saint gets off the hood of his car, walks over in front of the giant African in the loincloth and says, good morning, and then proceeds to kick him into the solar plexus. Hey. Now, right away, you're off to a great start for a 16-year-old boy. Then suddenly the style changes, and the vocabulary used by the author goes into the stratosphere. You need to get out your dictionary to follow what happens next. So he was quite erudite? Yes, more erudite than erudite. But he wasn't vociferous. 
Uh, no, but uh, he was uh, bro prolix. Prolix. Pro he was prolix. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> look those up, kids. <laughs> well, yeah. isn't that a famous watch? <laughs> yes, it is. It, uh, prolix takes a look at it and keeps on ticking. <laughs> That's John Cameron Swayze. I was watching the night he lost the watch, by the way. He digresses. Oh, that's, yeah, well, that, yes, he did those things live. Did live. It was on the Steve Allen Show, and he put the Timex watch on the uh, propeller of an outboard motor. And off it went. And told him he don't know where it went. And it went into, put it in the water, and he turns it on. And while it goes for like 45 seconds, he's giving the sales pitch. And he stops one and says, well, let's take a look at the Timex. He pulls the, you know, the outboard motor up. No watch. And he, and he ad-libs beautifully. He takes off his jacket, rolls up his sleeve, and puts it in the tank, looking for the watch. Meanwhile, time is clicking away. <laughs> and he finally looks up and says, Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure wherever it is, it's still ticking. <laughs> Figured out where it went. Is it came off of the propeller blades. It got sucked into, you know, there's a... Yeah. Yeah, it sucks the... It went right. inside the motor, the outboard motor. And that's why he couldn't find it. And then the other one that was great was, the, uh, what was her name, Betty Furness or something, trying to open the Amanda refrigerator and she couldn't get the door open on live TV. <laughs> right as we see the... I, I remember uh, uh, Ed McMahon doing uh, dog food commercials on The Tonight Show yes. live. Yeah. And he, he you know, he's, the dogs are supposed to eat, mm -hmm. but he can't get the dogs he's to eat. He eats this dog. Can't get the dogs to eat, so Carson comes over as a dog. And he's <laughs> he eats dog food. Eat the food. <laughs> yeah, that was the best. I, I remember that one, Matt? That was the best. <laughs> I wanted, when, what's his name, uh, threw the tomahawk and hit the drawing in the Yeah, crotch. well, that was, that was uh, Arness, and that was... Uh, that was not James. No, no, it was no. Thess Parker? No. It was the guy who played Chingus Cook. It's a guy, guy who's about 100 years old now who I, I, I won on the show, and uh, he doesn't do many radio interviews. Uh, and damn it, I can't think of his I name. can see him in my mind's eye. He's a singer. And, yeah, uh, Ed Ames. Ed Ames. Ed Ames. How do you like that? Huh? He's a good guy, but what makes that bit work? Carson stopping him. Yes, Carson stops him. He was, he was, Ed Ames was heading over. To pull, pull out. out. Carson knows funny, stops it. Yeah. yeah. And, and then he does the Moyle joke. And, <laughs> yeah, but he also does a joke before that that you never see. Ah. There's a joke, and I forget what it is, but there is a classic friggin' joke even before that. You know, he does, yeah, he does the, I didn't even know you were Jewish. Yeah. He does, he does another one, though, too. But, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, was it Josh Gabor sitting there petting her cat? No, that never happened. That never happened. Is that yes, a rumor? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. That that was the that's fiction. Fiction, but it sounds good. That we all thought happened, but yeah. it, was, it was Jane Fonda right. recounting the story, story on the show when it so, never happened in the first so place. Because of the recounting, me included, mm. as a kid, yeah. believe it, it truly happened. happened. Yeah, because the show her son had seen Carson's that. response was. No, I believe I would remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I believe I would. But because of that, it's like mass hypno yeah. hypnosis. Yeah. We all believe Maybe. we saw that happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's a power of suggestion. Um, I'm very suggestible um, myself. Nine to five. Um, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton was on. And he says, you know, so everyone wants to know. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, these things are real. They're mine. Yeah. And he says, I 
I'd, I'd give a month's pay to peek. <laughs> I'd give a year's pay to take a peek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, my, daughter know, once, my daughter asked, how did Dolly Parton's breasts get so huge? And someone said to her, and she was quite little at this time, said, she was born that way. You just see the strange look on my daughter's face as she's visualizing a baby with his enormous breasts. <laughs> anyway, back to the exciting story. Uh, what were you asking? So you, uh, so you, you're hooked on the saying as a kid. How do you get into it as an adult? Uh, I kept reading the books. In fact, I collected all the books. Then I discovered there were Saint movies starring George Saunders, Hugh Sinclair, etc. That right. were made by RKO. Uh, and then at the same time, the uh, Saint TV series with Roger Moore came right. out. And uh, yeah, as I think I may have mentioned on the show before, but we have so many new listeners. Uh, I took my son to the video store one day. And he, he selected three Roger Moore James Bond movies. We came home, and the light is blinking on the answering machine. So with these tapes in his hand, he walks over and presses the play button. And guess who had called? Roger. Roger Moore. He goes, well, this is Roger Moore calling for Burl Bear. Uh, you know, call me back and send such such a number. My son's eyeballs. <laughs> He's looking at the tapes. He's looking at the answering machine. It's the only time Roger Moore ever called me. I called him back and got his son, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, Roger had already gone to the airport to fly back to England, so we missed our uh-huh. little connection there. But that, it was worth it just to see the look on my son's face when Roger Moore called the house. <laughs> my, uh, my uncle, I had an uncle that was uh, CPA to the stars, among others. Uh, among others? Um, well, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to discuss the others. Oh, but um, probably. Uh, I was over at the house with the rest of the family for uh, whatever Jewish holiday it was, yeah. and I just come out of the, the guest bathroom, which is which was right in front of where the phone and the note station was. And the phone rings, so I pick it up. Uh, hello, Boyer Residence, and this voice says, "Hi, this is uh, um, oh, Doctor Seuss." No, <laughs> um, is he bigger than a bread box? Uh, this is uh, a. a USO, uh, Bob, this, this is Bob, Bob Hope. Hope. This is Bob Hope. I'm going to Z-Lay around, and I go, Bob Hope. Yeah, right. Click. Uh, the same thing, exact same thing happened at my sister's house. Bob Hope called your sister? Uh, actually, it was uh, Bob Hope did call because his wife was visiting my sister. Oh. And the guy doing some construction or remodeling in the living room was expecting a call when the phone rang. He answered it instead of my sister. And the guy says, uh, this is Bob Hope. He goes, yeah, and I'm Bing Crosby. And hung up on him. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I told, I told uh, one of my cousins, I said, some idiot pretending to be Bob Hope just called. And they turned ashen white. <laughs> well, you were pretending. <laughs> yeah, well, Eli called him right back. It was okay. Yeah, um, you so, you, um, so there I was. So I'm trying to get to, you have, a, you have this fascination with the material. How did you get involved professionally? Okay, uh, there was a magazine called uh, Video Review. Uh-huh. I think it probably still exists. It was the review. Never heard of it, but go uh, on. Then there's another one called Video Magazine, very similar. And uh, they would have episode guides to TV shows, things such as that. And uh, I wrote a proposal for the video magazine to do an article about the saint, the, the saint things that were available on video, old saint movies, etc. My nephew, Lee Goldberg... New York Times bestselling author. At that time, wasn't a New York Times bestselling author, but he had uh, a book out called uh, from McFarland Publishing, The Complete Encyclopedia of Unsold Television Pilots. I was like that. 
and he uh, revised my proposal to be a complete book about all the incarnations of the saints, sent it to McFarland Publishing without my knowledge. Ah. And on the first Saturday after the 4th of July, in about uh, 1990-1989, I show up at Loon Lake, Washington to go fishing with my dad, and he goes, oh, you got a letter here that came to the house in Walla Walla from uh, some publishing company. And I opened it up, and it was a contract for the book. Oh, wow. And uh, it was all news to me. Uh, I signed the contract, and then I wrote the book. Well, Leslie Charteris, the guy who created The Saint, right. was still alive over in England. And I wrote him a letter and asked if he'd uh, help me write a book. <laughs> and he said, no. He says, I'm always being asked, you know, for this. People are going to write a book about the history of The Saint. And they never do it, and I don't cooperate, but good luck. Well, I, uh, but he gave me some suggestions of who other people to talk to. Well, I'm fairly tenacious, and I wound up getting all the movers, shakers, Baptists, and Quakers lined up. And, uh, Any druids? Duh, yeah. <laughs> These aren't the droids you want. <laughs> and uh, I actually wrote the book. And uh, Charteris agreed to read the final manuscript and correct any errors of fact, mm -hmm. which he did. And he sent me the most wonderful letter when the book was done, saying that he was uh, uh, rather, I don't know, kind of stunned or whatever to to be the subject of such a magnum opus what he thought it was a moss-covered monument. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm left with the two most trite, numbling words in my vocabulary. Thank you. I hope to say them to you in person. So I flew over to England, and I had lunch with Leslie Charteris and his lovely wife, and Ian nice. Dickerson, uh, who was kind of his assistant in running the same... Did you bring any, uh, any of the books for him to autograph? Of course. You think I'm a total idiot? Well, possibly. <laughs> possibly. Uh... Dan Bodenheimer, who was also a big Saint fan, went over to England at the same time I did. And he brought with him a first edition copy of the very first Saint book, which is called The Saint Meets the Tiger, or Meet the Tiger, which was the Charteris wrote when he was like 19 years old. And it's, it's not that good a book. I mean, I guess for 19 in 1927, it's a good book. What Dan paid to buy the book was more money than Charteris was paid for writing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got autographed copies of my own book by him, you know, him signing the, the hardback oh. and all that. So I have a copy of my book signed by him. And uh, uh, something special happened uh, after the publication of your book. Yes, people bought it, which is, they still do, by the way. I get royalty checks uh, right. twice a year. People still are crazy enough to uh, buy right. that book. Uh, it won the uh, Edgar Award for the Mystery Writers of America. And now we know why we call Burl Bear the award-winning author. Well, yes, that makes me an award-winning author. Well, and boy, and if I hadn't won that, we wouldn't be saying that. <laughs> but they can't take that away from you. You know who else won the, that, that same award a few years later? Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Agatha Christie won it. Uh, Quentin, won what, it. what did Quentin win it for? Uh, he won it for Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction? That's interesting. A movie winning that. Yeah, well, you can. they have classifications for uh, print, uh, television, and film. Right. My nephew's been nominated several times, but he hasn't snagged snagged one yet. Um, I don't know. Has, uh, has, his, uh, has his frequent co-author, um, who wrote the... Uh, uh, Janet Ivanovich? Yeah, Janet Ivanovich. Yeah, we learned a great lesson from her that I haven't learned yet. <laughs> Which, less is more? Less is more. Uh, talk about economical prose. I mean, it's slick. I mean, you know, moves great. The sentences are short. The scriptures are short. It moves real well. And and you still and you still have a complete sense of what's going on in the yes, environment. Yes. Yeah. Uh, 
Less is more. I was came from just the opposite school of writing because I... Was yeah, yeah, I'm a bit flowery also. Well, I'm not saying that I'm flowery. I'm just a verbose and prolix. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and part of that comes from uh, Charters' style in the St. Now, I started to mention how when the saint kicks the giant black guy in the loincloth, yes. the style changes. And all of a sudden, you know, and then, you know, something happened, blah, blah, blah. Now, they could have discussed the proper seating arrangements for social events, and he goes, oh, the, all these things have nothing to do with the action sequence using all these big words, very flowery, absurd, right. satirical, making a joke out of the whole thing. And it says, and those are the last pleasant words the saint said that morning. And then it goes right back into the action. And as a result of that style, not only did you have the 16-year-old boys crazy about this crap, right? And and girls as well. Uh, But adults found that hysterical. And so it was selling equally well with youngsters and with more sophisticated adults. Kind of like, um, what was that puppet show that used to be on TV? Beanie and Cecil. A Bob Clampett cartoon. Yeah. Uh, although they used to do it, actually had uh, marionettes. I ate one yet. Oh, well, that no, that was the Thunderbirds. Oh, no, oh. we were talking earlier. Earlier. I'm older than you are. Oh, before that. Yeah. Because I was a big Thunderbird fan. I bet you were. Did they just have where they, was a still picture and just their lips moved? Like Crash Carter? That was, yeah. It got <laughs> awful. Yeah. World's cheapest animation. <laughs> now they have them done in Japan. Yeah, that was, uh, they Clutch Cargo was uh, a... a a, uh, a just a, a a throwaway in Pulp Fiction, you know when Christopher Walken is giving uh, young Bruce Willis the watch. Mm. He's watching that show. Well, good for him. I remember that? Yeah, I know the uh, uh, what you would call those uh, the minions who are watching the Saint on TV in one of the uh, <laughs> those uh, movies that they did. Well, the guy is a bad guy. Anyway, sort of to, to answer your question, aside from the Saint. Um, uh, in the 1970, I think it was 1970, about there, uh, my buddy Terry McManus wanted to do a radio commercial for an album of music from the Alfred Hitchcock films, including the theme from Psycho, North by Northwest, and all that. Okay. So we wrote and produced uh, this radio commercial for an album of music from the Hitchcock films and sent it to London Records, say, hey, what do you think about this? They loved it. They paid us. They ran it, and it helped sell this uh, soundtrack album incredibly well. So we started a business that specialized in entertainment advertising. And uh, we did uh, commercials for the record labels, for Capitol, and uh, all, you know, all of them would hire us. And then we started doing concerts. You know, not doing the concerts, but advertising for the concerts. Right. Say, like Bob Dylan would go on a 40-city tour. We'd do commercials for all 40 cities. Uh, Name and Clay, anybody, any star you can think of. We did uh, all the show, rock shows in Las Vegas and uh, uh, motion picture trailers and that sort of thing, which was uh, uh, great fun. And uh, that was uh, successful. I said, well, so far I've done radio. I've done television. I got wound up getting the cable television advertising franchise for uh, Eastern Washington, except for Spokane. That was dandy. Sold that for big bucks. <laughs> and retired early. So my friend Bill Strom got me a T-shirt that said, I used to be Burl Bear. <laughs> that really hurt. Because uh, I wasn't doing anything except resting on my laurels and watering my legend and living off the money I'd made. Which, which unfortunately, you don't have anymore. Unfortunately. I'm about to get more, though. 
Um, so let's uh, let's fast forward uh, a week. Yeah. So, <clears throat> what makes you decide to take on the totally unrewarding <laughs> and quite arduous true crime uh, genre? I didn't intend to do it. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> most people stumble into something. As I fell into it like a clean kid into a coal chute. There I was in Walla Walla, Washington, uh-huh. minding my own business. Uh, yeah, you say. And I get a telephone call on a Sunday night from, of all people, the bass player for uh, the Whalers, I think. Not the, not the uh, Rastafarian ones, but the Seattle Northwest. Okay. Uh, saying, Burl, this is so-and-so. His name escapes me at the moment. It's very embarrassing to suddenly not be able to remember his name. Uh he says, would you be interested in writing a book? He says, you were recommended, I think, by Ann Rule. Uh, we had talked to her about writing this book, and she was too busy, but she suggested you. Why she suggested me, I don't know. Uh, but I said, okay. <laughs> Maybe she uh, read my same book. I don't know. Uh, and it was the story of Phil Champagne, who, uh, you know. Uh, and and as tradition on this show, a a shameless plug for Burl, the counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne. Champagne. Yeah. Who, who, when asked uh, if they wanted to do him, if they wanted to change some facts about the uh, movie, he said, "I don't care if you make me a cartoon mouse. Just write me a check." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so do I. I just love that. That was Anthony Spinner asked that question. Uh, I went. He was the uh, producer on Return of the Saint. As a matter of fact, so Ian Ogilvy, who's been a guest here on our show a couple times. Yes, he has. Guy. Nice guy. Yeah, real nice guy. Uh, he kind of got screwed financially on Return of the Saint, but uh, he's still famous for it. In any event, I go to Anthony Spinner's office, and he's out in his car smoking dope, which I probably wouldn't have known, except he's wearing a big, uh, like, wool sweater, which soaked up all the cannabis. So when he comes back into the room with his eyeballs spinning in his sockets, I could get high just sniffing his sweater. <laughs> And so I give him the whole pitch. He goes, would Phil mind if we made Barb's brother a private eye? You know, he just starts changing everything. <laughs> yeah, Phil doesn't care if you make him a cartoon mouse. <laughs> as long as you write him a check. Well, he didn't write him a check. And writes, The rights on that has been option for a film too many times, and it hasn't happened yet. There was a song written uh, about it called The Battle of Phil's Champagne. Right. Yeah, we uh, we we had that info here. Yeah, we actually had uh, Phil on the show. Who's that? We had him on the show before. Phil, he passed Phil Champagne, yes. <laughs> Phil, Ch- yeah. Burl, I I don't think I was honest with you about everything. <laughs> Do you think I don't know that, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> I always did want to be a counterfeiter. Yeah, I kind of thought that, Phil. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, did you ever ask Anne uh, why she recommended you? Uh, I didn't have the nerve to do that in case it was a mistake, but we had a wonderful lunch together The uh, when I won the Edgar about the day before. We were both in New York City. Okay, so you did meet the lady. Oh, Ann Rule? Yeah. Oh, yes. She just uh, she talked like this. Burl, I just think you're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll tell you, we just had kind of this little feud going on with her, was the greatest true crime writer of all time was Jack Olson. Wasn't, Jack- he, uh, wasn't he Superman? No, no, that's Jimmy Olsen, uh, Superman's Jimmy Olsen. pal. No, okay. Jack Olson is a uh, <laughs> uh, multi-Edgar winner, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, brilliant guy, uh, fantastic writer. I, I told him one day, we became good friends, we talk on the phone a lot, uh, he was a great mentor, and I read the, the opening page 
of his book, Salt of the Earth. It was so well written, so brilliantly constructed, that I wanted to take my word processor and throw it in the ocean because <laughs> I could never be that good. I figured, I just better give up now. <laughs> and I told him that, and he laughed. He thought that was really funny because he always put his endorsement on the cover of my books, saying nice things about me. And the reason for that, as he told me, was because of Man Overboard, which is the only book of mine he ever read. He said, I don't need to read the others, the ones since then. He says, that one was enough for me. He says, you did the two things I like. He says, it had strong journalistic ethics, strong, journal, you know, real journalism, mm -hmm. research, ethics. And he said, stylistically, I loved it. So that was the two things that, you know, after that, I was, I could do no wrong in his, uh, in his book, shall we say. Okay. So uh, you... Uh you're asked to do this from the bass player. Yeah, so I wrote that book. Well, what, you, no. what did you do first? I said, yeah, I'll do that. Well, but <laughs> uh, how did you start the process? I mean, this, you're new to the genre. What did you, what did you do first? Uh, I said, well, I asked him the same question. You know, what, who can you give me here? You know, he says, well, we can give you Phil Champagne. We can give you his brothers. We can give you the uh, guy who sold the insurance policy. Because Phil Champagne, for those of you who don't know, 1982... Bill Champagne died in a tragic boating accident off Lopez Island. He was survived by one ex-wife, uh, two despondent brothers, uh, ex, uh, one uh, wife, ex-wife, whatever, soon-to-be ex-wife. Phil didn't know he was dead until he read it in the newspaper. All things considered, he took it rather well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he had fallen off a boat, fallen off his brother's fishing boat, and the Coast Guard searched for the body for 13 hours, didn't find it. And that's because he was fished out of the water by an illegal fisherman who wouldn't take him to the hospital because he was afraid he'd get busted for being an illegal fisherman. Uh -huh. So he, and Phil had hypothermia and everything by this point. So uh, he's at the uh, fisherman's cabin for a couple of days. And when he's strong enough to uh, get drop kicked out of there, it says in the paper that he's dead. You know, he died. This is a hell of a deal because he's going through a bad divorce. <laughs> so he figures, this is my way out. So he gets hold of his best friend in Portland, meets him uh, at the Benson Hotel or whatever, but he gives him maybe $1,500. He says, be careful, Phil. He says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a free man now. I'm going to change my, you know, his ID, everything, get fake ID, become a new person. And he does, becomes several new people. <laughs> Winds up uh, pulling tens of thousands of dollars out of some drug lord's lair. <laughs> and and uh, comes back to Washington State with a new name. A new wife, and then he's arrested. <laughs> and and how how did they they catch on or find him? Well, uh, he was he wanted to uh, get a what do you call it? A, uh, I can't think of it. Franchise for some legal thing, but he huh. needed a couple grand. So he figured he'd make some phony bills. And uh, so he tried to counterfeit U.S. currency. Yes, uh, and he did such a good job that most of the bills made it all the way to the Federal Reserve Bank before they were caught. But some of the first efforts weren't that good. And he, uh, one of the bills he had that wasn't that good, he tried to use to pay for a pancake breakfast in Ritzville, Washington, on the way to Seattle, Bellevue, to, to cash some of these bills. And if they'd had enough cash in the cash register to cash that $100 bill, he would have got away with it. But because the manager had to go open the safe, 
he had that bill in his hand long enough to figure out there was something wrong with it. Now, you just can't call the cops and say, I got a counterfeit bill, because the cops aren't qualified to know whether you're full of crap or not. You have to call the United States Secret Service, and you have to wait for the United States Secret Service to show up. Ah. Well, they do, and it was Phil's wife who passed the bill, so she's the one who's taken away in handcuffs. <laughs> but not Phil. Phil does not look like he belongs with this woman and her son. They look like, you know, Eastern Washington people. He's dressed to the nines, has a slight British accent, and looks like Ronald Coleman, you know, or George <laughs> Saunders. Does not fit with these people at all. And so they, uh, Lila Workman, the Secret Service agent, says to, uh, supposed to ask Phil some questions. I'd love to help you, gentlemen, but I'm, I'm constrained by previous commitments to make any comment on the situation. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to let him go. But they shattered him, right? And they followed him, found everything he could. And they figured out that the name he was using, Harold Stegman. <laughs> and Harold Stegman had been dead for a long time. He died as a child <laughs> the same year that uh, Phil was born. His ID then was bogus. Uh, they didn't know who he was. But they found the counterfeiting stuff and all that. Uh, and finally, the, the day his wife goes to trial, the Secret Service tells her, we found out your husband's real name. She goes, what do you mean? <laughs> she didn't know who he was. Who he was. No, they, got, they hadn't been married yet, but they quickly got married, so she couldn't testify against him. Well, well she could testify. <laughs> she just can't be compelled yes. to testify. All right, so um, you're, you're, you're looking at writing a book, uh, a true crime book. Um, did you ask anyone in the in the industry for some advice on how you do it. Uh, yeah, the best advice that I got as far as writing true crime came from Gary C. King, who's a very well-known true crime writer. We had him on the show. In fact, I recently posted uh, on our uh, Anchor FM site and iTunes, etc., the interview with Gary C. King when he was on our show. Uh, he said, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, because the true crime books, that this was after Man Overboard, when I signed a contract with Kensington Publishing Group, which is Pinnacle True Crime. Right. And they're all real gruesome cases, you know, axe murders, murdered children, God knows all sorts of horrible yeah. things. You know, yeah. missing dirt bikes. Yeah, yeah, kid never got the dirt bike. <laughs> uh, it's all that kind of stuff. And very painful, very traumatic stories. He says, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, because the stories are devastating. You're going to have to talk to the families of these horrible losses. It's going to be very, it's very emotionally draining to write right. those kind of true crime books. It's almost like you have to be like a, a policeman or an EMT where you... Disassociate yeah. from the Cause, event. Yeah, because if you get emotionally, I mean, then you get devastated because the crimes are so horrible. Uh, you have to kind of put up a wall there to right. protect yourself. And, you know, being on this show now for almost six years. Really? Yeah, time goes by so quickly when you're having fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of them, some of the uh, material is just gut wrenching. Oh, especially the first one I did for uh, a serious true crime book, which is Murder in the Family, which is uh, my New York Times bestseller. No one was prepared for that. My first serious true crime book. I mean, Man Overboard was funny, but this is serious. Murder in the Family for uh, Pinnacle. 
immediately went to the New York Times bestseller list, which totally stunned everybody because they weren't prepared for that. So it hits the New York Times bestseller list, and we ran out of books. <laughs> so it was New York Times bestseller for a week, so we ran out of books. But uh, they can't take that away from you, you know. That, no. That thing. Uh, so what I'm, what that I'm was to... a difficult book to write because you had a woman and two little kids brutally murdered. Yeah. So, was... But what I'm trying to get to is the writing process. Uh, uh, so you 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 start with the you start with the interviews or do you well, do, that's the thing do you is, do background will research you get, first? Will you get cooperation? If you can't get cooperation to do the book, yeah, you can, how are you going to do the book? Right. You have to be able to uh, not only get law enforcement and prosecutors and defense attorneys on board with you to tell the story, and the laws have to be said. Now there is a Freedom of Information Act. I'll give you an example. In virtually any state, if I want a police report on a crime, being as if the police, uh, it's, you know, what's this? it's a socialist organization. Our taxes pay for it. Anything your taxes pay for is socialist. So if you want a police report, you're entitled to it because your taxes paid for it. So you say, I have a request. I would like this police report. And they say, okay, and... They vet it and they send it to you, except in some places, such as Kansas, where if you request a police report, you get the cover page. That's it. Anything else is at the discretion of the chief of police, what he wants to give you. And it really varies also in terms of cost of research. When I went to Alaska to research murder in the family, the uh, prosecutors... uh, were wonderful, and they gave me everything, and I needed copies, like Xerox, you know, copies of uh, all sorts of stuff. Some people want to charge you $5 a page for trial transcripts. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> that's a, it's just a, uh, a poison pill to keep the, uh, you know, the looky-loos away. Well, it made it, make it impossible to do research because you don't get a research budget, you can't pay five dollars a page. And that you know you could end up paying you know tens of thousands of dollars. That's right, and and which you can't, which I can't, right? Yeah. So fortunately, when I'm in Alaska, the guy the uh, the guy in charge of the printing of this stuff says, "Come in the back room." Pulls out a ream of paper, puts it in the copy machine. Boom, 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 boom. Used up an entire ream of paper. Says, "I see that'll be twelve dollars and fifty cents." Thank God for guys like him. I when I wrote. Uh, Headshot, which was the one after that. I, being as there were two mistrials, uh, appeals to the state supreme court, I had to go to the uh, Washington State Supreme Court, and they have like storage lockers full of trial transcripts, uh, lawyers' documents, you know. And I said, I need some copies. Well, what do you want copies of in in regards to this case? And I said, absolutely everything. everything. And they just looked at me with displays that no one has ever asked for absolutely everything. I said, I want absolutely everything. We don't know what to charge you for absolutely everything. So, well, I'll take it. Someday you figure it out. And I <laughs> came with a minivan because you couldn't put it in your car. It was boxes, 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 boxes. Right. Loaded up this van full of all of copies of everything they had from the uh, state Supreme Court and drove away. And that was, well, statute of limitations is up on that crime. <laughs> They're not coming after me. I never get a bill. Which mm-hmm. was, 
But you have to have the cooperation. Families sometimes will cooperate. Uh, when I wrote Broken Doll about the tragic murder of little Roxanne Doll, her family, her, her mom and dad, were incredibly cooperative. I mean, they would give me every bit of information they possibly could about the kid. Even the pictures of the body it was, it was horrible. Uh, the detective, uh, Lloyd Herndon, who solved the, solved the case, he was very, very cooperative. Uh, but then I've had situations where the family is not cooperative and, in fact, threaten me, call me up and don't you, you have, don't have our permission to write about this. And I had one, I won't mention who the people were, where incest was so rampant in the family that you would need a chart and a graph to keep track of who's doing who. Uh, I couldn't mention that in the book <laughs> because they were major, you know. But uh, and then you had situations where it also in that where there were these two brothers who gave me tons and tons and tons of interviews and information, and I sent them release forms saying, you know, we have been interviewed by Burl Bear, we're not charging them any money because you don't have any money for that sort of stuff. He goes, no, we want money. I said, there is no money. There is no research budget. Right? I have no money to give you. Well, in that case, you can't quote us. So, you know, try to extort me. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, their sister was a much kinder soul. And she could always say, whatever they said to you, say I said it. And I'll sign the form. <laughs> she was kind of irked at her brothers for that. So thank God for her. Uh, but I've had situations where I, I go to do a book and uh, there's just no cooperation. Or you get tons of cooperation, and the publisher goes, eh, I don't know about that one. So what I would do when I was under contract to Kensington, the yeah, same thing, uh, and I'm not under contract to Wild Blue, but I have a fantastic relationship with them. I'm under contract right now because I just signed a new book contract. But uh, I would send to my editor, Karen Haas, who is an absolutely fantastic editor. She's retired now, unfortunately. She hung up her blue pencil. Uh, and I'd say, okay, I, I wouldn't have to give formal proposals. i just call her on the phone. Say, okay, I got this case here where a psychiatrist is poking his patient and then uh, he murders her because he doesn't want people to find out he's having sex with her. Then we got this one where a dog trainer uh, does this. We got that. And then we got this one. She said, oh, do that one. I got a letter from uh, Michaela Hamilton, who was executive editor at Kensington. I believe it was from her, where she says, the market has changed. Uh... We, most of your books have been about blue-collar families and blue-collar murderers. Well, being as we're in a recession now, people want to read books about wealthy people being mad, being bad, you know, wealthy murderers, right? And she added, and if you got a wood chipper, <laughs> rich people, lots of sex, lots of drugs, murder, and preferably a wood chipper. Well, I couldn't get the wood chipper into the story. But I did find uh, very rich people that are doing very bad things. That's Rhonda Glover, and the book is Fatal Beauty. So that fit the uh, the criteria for the... It's, right. it's similar to, like, USA Today isn't a newspaper. It's a magazine. What's the difference? USA Today researches what people want to read about and writes it. Finds the story to fit what the people want to read about, as opposed to a newspaper, which... Writes the news. Writes the Whatever news. Whatever it is. Yeah. People, people today in America are gloriously ignorant of the difference between news and editorial. Uh, even people who are professional broadcasters don't know the difference. Well, you know, what they are is uh, they're just 
new, they're just sheet readers. The who? They're sheet readers. They, the, the material is written for them, and all they do is read it on the air. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rip and read. Yeah, so, you know, they either have a teleprompter or it's in front of them. Yeah. Uh, my buddy Sparky Taft, who was one of the great advertising executives of all time, and uh, his clients do remarkably well, he's all mad at the Seattle Times because they did an editorial he didn't agree with. Because that's not news. I said, no, that's why it's on the op-ed page. <laughs> you know? you know, but it's, 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 they're a left-leaning blah, blah. Said, it's their opinion. It's just as valid as, you know, opinions are opinions. Everybody's got that, one. Yeah, yeah. Assholes uh, and yeah. But, but news, which rhymes with muse, by the way, news is who, what, when, where, why. The resultant implications of that is your opinion. But just, just the facts, ma'am, like Joe Friday, that's news. Actually, news is specifically defined as what you need to know and what you have a right to know. Anything else is just gossip, you know, filler. So showbiz news, you have a right to know that? I guess, maybe. <laughs> you need to know it. The entertainment tonight. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All the news is fit to print. And all the print that's fit to news. Yes. So how do you approach the research side of, of, of a project? Well, that's the first thing. You have to find where is your door, where is your window there, where can you get your information. Uh, a few other crew crime writers now, we often discuss this. One thing I have always, and I don't know why, have been able to do is get people, even criminals, to talk to me and tell me everything. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a cop. I'm just a guy writing a book. Mm -hmm. They will talk to me. They will not, people will come to say, hi, I'm from WRA, you know, whatever, I'm one of and they tell me, you know, go jump in the lake. I just sit down and talk to them and go, like I did with Phil Champagne. When I first met Phil, he's in prison. I get coffee. I sit down. He's waiting to see what I'm going to do. And he's already had like 13 people come to him who want to write a book about him. Said, Mr. Champagne, I'm interested in writing a book about you, blah, blah, blah. So I wasn't going to do that. So I sit down, or I sit outside at the federal prison by Spokane. I kind of look at my styrofoam cup of coffee, swirl it around a bit, light a cigarette, lean forward and say, tell me, Phil, how good were the bills? Oh, they were good. I said, what I don't understand, Phil, is why you pass them at the damn Perkins Cake and Steak, whatever it was, or Frontier Pies. Why didn't you go down on Sprague Avenue where the drug dealers are and get changed there, you know, behind an eight ball or something like that? You know? And, Bill, we just had this great conversation, and then when we were all done, and the time's going, well, you going to write the book or not? Because <laughs> that's the thing. You know, you want to establish bonds of communication. Mm-hmm. And trust and understanding. And I was talking to uh, one of the uh, the others. Maybe it was uh, the nice lady from WRAL that we've had on the show a few times. Where people will talk to her also. You know, you come in with the satellite dishes and this and that and your suit and your microphones. And, you know, they get, uh, But it was just one-on-one -on -one with someone who relates to them and they can relate to. You know, people will people talk to me. And someone asks, how in the world... Did you get, we had him on the show, that guy from the Russian mob to come on your show and tell the entire story of his involvement in the Russian mob and da-da-da, da-da-da, and the meaning of his tattoos. And I said, I said, 
I am the true crime author and true crime interviewer that criminals trust. Because I'm not going to get them arrested. If they want to start talking about something that's not a statute of limitations, no one else is going to hear it. I'm not going to violate their trust. Right. They know they can trust me. And that makes a big difference. You know, because the Bob Dylan says, to live outside the law, you must be honest. And that's us. We're honest. Guess what, Burrow? I mean, are we almost out of time? Yes, we are. Well, gee whiz. You know what's next? <laughs> I don't know. What, uh, waiting for our waiting lovely for producer. Our producer is Magic Man. I know that he does a radio show on Sirius XM. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the, the 60s. 70s on 7. 70s on 7? Do Morning they have the 60s on 6? Do they have 50s on 5? I, I, it's possible. I just don't, I never you listen never, to those. You know, Matt is a very creative and clever gentleman. Yeah. He does magic on the radio. Sleight um, of hand uh, tricks that you have never seen. <laughs> I, I want to know where that rabbit went. Yeah. In a hat and up a rope. <laughs> <laughs> and into a top hat. Uh, any idea who we're going to talk to next week? Uh, I got lots of ideas. In fact, uh, my head is dense with ideas. In fact, I'm one of the densest people you've ever worked with. <laughs> that uh, bump. I, I stole that from Robert for... Mack. I recommend going to the Dry Bar comedy special, Robert Mack, and uh -huh. watch his comedy special. Excellent. His timing is beautiful. His material is great. And then I watched some of clips of him doing some of the same material from like five, six years ago when he was starting out. And you can really see the development yeah. of him as a professional, his timing and delivery, etc. RobertMack.com. <laughs> so you, yeah. So you were reading uh, the Saint novels, yeah, as a kid, yeah. And this pretty much this probably explains me and why I'm so completely nuts. Uh, I was reading and and devouring Edgar Allan Poe, oh yeah, and Philip K. Dick and Stephen King. Yeah, I read Stephen King and all that, but I was just became obsessed with this overwriting style, the pro, you know, the prolixity. Uh, yes, uh, Stephen does tend to ramble. Uh, while you were saying less is more, as Ivanovich taught my beloved nephew, it's difficult for me to be so economical because the style I was influenced by was intentional overwriting. Not intentional like uh, the guy wrote Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens. He overwrote for a very specific reason. He was paid by the word. Ah. It was yeah, the but, best uh, of times. It was the worst of times. He was, uh, he was also influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. Well, who wouldn't be? Well, because uh, many of Treasure Island's uh, uh, aspects come you out. You think of Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson. That See, came... now that's, I live in a town named after him. You did? Yeah, out of the Stevenson Ranch. It's named after Robert Louis Stevenson. Every street in Stevenson Ranch is named after an author. Ah. Yeah, you got Old yeah. Drive and, you know, Ivanovich Lane. <laughs> <laughs> they do not yet have a Burl Bear, legendary Burl Bear Street, but they should. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll be a short Alley. It's a very short, uh, short-lived street and a short-lived career. Yeah, it's like uh, Edward Everett Horton Lane. Oh, his, yes. You know, Is there was, an Edward Everett Horton Lane? Yeah, it was about that long. <laughs> yeah, for as long as his name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. We got that covered. Um, yes, we. I am writing a new book, and I'm writing an old book, too. So, um, what's next? Hey, Burl. Yeah. What's next? Uh, what's his name? The guy from the Sevens on Seven. Uh, oh, Magic yeah. Man Magic Man Allen, the Demons, the Demons of Decadence. An outlaw radio. Alive. Dot com. Yeah. Get it while it's hot. Name is
is mom. James. Today we're going to grill like a swordfish our host, Merle Bear. <laughs> That's right. The church loves me. The church loves you. <laughs> Merle, how That's you doing? That's a Catholic joke. <laughs> how are you doing, Mr. Merle Bear? I'm alive and well, much to my surprise, and the delight of millions. Uh, it's not well, easy being a award-winning true crime writer. Of course, I hardly know because I've only won a couple of awards. Some people have won so many. But what do you have to water? What do I have to water? My legend. <laughs> I was up all night coming with left of my hair. <laughs> uh, so, Pearl, you uh, you uh, start out as a fantabulous rock and roll rock and roll DJ, minding my own business, playing the hits for the kids. Out there somewhere in the I actually Seattle started area. at a, a uh, radio station that has less power than my hairdryer. KTEL in Walla Walla, 250 watts of power. Which basically, which reached next door. In yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was like, uh, what was the frequency? In, in, infrequent. <laughs> uh, it was right by the glove box in your car. For easy access, you know, ah. that's where you turn the All the way, so it was AM? Yeah, of course. Uh, ah. FM in those days was limited to uh, classical music stations, which of course had a rating <laughs> of <laughs> less than yes. zero. One. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> then you, uh, then you, you gradually moved into advertising and, uh, and promotion. Small, uh, small promotion. Uh, rental on the lake. Uh, I had an interesting landlord when I lived on uh, Lake Washington. Yeah. He said, luxury, furnished, on the lake. That sounds like a good deal. So I moved in, Mm -hmm. and it was furnished. In the middle of the night, I I thought I heard burglars in the house. I was a little worried, but then it was all quiet. I got up in the morning, and my furniture was different. So that's interesting. About a week later, heard the same sound, got up again in the morning, Furniture was different. <laughs> what the deal was is the guy had several furnished units, but not enough furniture to go around. Ah. So someone complained, I don't have a couch in my unit. He goes, no problem, you have couch tomorrow. He come to my apartment, remove my couch, give it to the other guy, and put a like, straight back chair where my couch had been. I would complain, and then a week or so later, all of a sudden, someone else in furniture shows up in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a, a lovely little scam going yeah, on. Yeah, it was a fascinating, Captain. But the, the problem, of course, is that I moved from uh, that unit, which was on Lake Washington, over to Queen Anne Hill, which is quite a ways. It was quite different. And I worked until 2 o'clock in the morning, playing the hits for the kids. We were up at 2 o'clock in the morning, probably stoned out of their minds. And uh, I forgot where I lived, and I drove all the way to the apartment on Lake Washington, just in time to see the landlord moving out some furniture. <laughs> oh, I don't live here anymore. And uh, throw back to Queen Anne Hill. I see. Well, <clears throat> so you you, uh, you go to, you're doing uh, out of my mind. advertising and... Well, yeah, because, you know, when you work at a radio station, you learn yeah. how to do all sorts of exciting things. Right. Uh, one of the exciting things I learned from Big Jim Martin at KJR in uh, Seattle was you tape record the first hour of your show, or first two hours of your show, without ever giving the exact time. 20 past the hour, quarter past the hour. You save that tape, and then at 4 o'clock in the morning, you play it, leave the station, and go to the Blue Eagle for an early breakfast (laughs) 
which is, of course, horrifyingly illegal and a violation. But the FCC is closed on the weekends. Who's going to let them know? Okay. And uh, that's why actually we did that. We would record the first two hours. And, <laughs> and then play it as the last two hours. Yeah. Something, boy, that's familiar. That must be having deja vu. <laughs> well, I worked there in Seattle Radio, and then uh, my dad in Walla Walla, Washington, the land that time forgot, uh, called up and wanted me to come to Walla Walla and, and work selling structural steel and industrial gases so he could retire. Being suicidal, I, <laughs> I took that offer, went to Walla Walla, and uh, I was working for Pat O'Day in Seattle at KYYX, or as he would call it, KYX. And, and uh, for the listener, Pat O'Day is a uh, legendary. legendary program director. Uh, I think five-time winner of the Program Director of the Year Award from the National Association of Self-Congratulatory Radio Programmers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no different than any other award shows. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so um, they had a trade-out with the airlines. And so I would fly back to Seattle on Friday afternoons and pre-record enough voice tracks for two radio stations, KYX and KXA. KXA used to be a religious station. Or they became a religious station. Give me that old-time religion. Give me yes. that old-time religion. Uh, when, when we were doing it with music, uh, it was called Old Gold 77 KXA. And we played all the oldies. But in order to generate significant income, it became a religious station. And so it went from Old Gold to Oh God, uh, just overnight, like that. And then they fired my cousin because he wasn't a Christian, which I think is a violation of federal law. <laughs> I believe that's the case. Yeah, I think if we would have acted quickly, my uh, cousin Mike would own KXA. But uh, he didn't know that you could complain. <laughs> about being, well, sorry, this is a Christian radio station. You're not Christian. you got to go. You're Jewish. Out. Yes. Out. Out. Out, damn spot. Yes, we think it's 70 AD. You're out. We'll let you back in 1844. Considered a vacation. Oh. So there I was, buying my own business in Walla Walla, Washington. And I get a phone call from a guy named Jim Nelly. Now, Jim Nelly is uh, infamous in radio broadcasting. He used to be program director of KTAC in Tacoma. And uh, he was a fine, fine gentleman, unless he took a drink. I see. All it took was one drink. And there's a movie like this with, uh, what's her name, stars in it, where she has one drink and she goes nuts. Uh, well, it wasn't the last weekend with Ray, Ray Milan. No, no, we were talking much later, you know, but, you know, in the 70s, 80s. Nice. In any event, uh, he would go nuts. Uh, and that caused quite a few problems with his reputation. Uh, in any event, he had KUJ Radio in Walla Walla, Washington, and he wanted to sell it. He said, Burl, here's the deal. I will pay you real money. And what you do is, I call you on the phone, and wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I don't care if you're selling structural steel or industrial gases, when you get that call, you drop everything, drive to the radio station, and go on the air and make it sound like a real radio station. Because <laughs> he's, you know, he's paying these people, you know, 25 cents an hour or whatever to play the hits. Right. And so I did that. And the goal was so he could sell it for big bucks. Mm -hmm. uh, he sold the AM and the FM, which didn't exist yet. <laughs> We did have a construction permit for a massive amount of money, and uh, he ran away. <laughs> he left and uh, stopped drinking and bought a radio, started smoking pot, and uh, bought a radio station in Humboldt County. <laughs> well, okay, and uh, and did he uh, remediate you at any Yes, uh, yes. 
Uh, he did pay me. I was quite fine. Oh, and man, then the people who bought the radio station hired me right. to more or less uh, program direct the, uh, the thing. It was fun. And then uh, <laughs> I walked into the radio station at uh, this time, and a fellow named Tom Hodgins was on the air with a name like Luke Warm or something like that. <laughs> 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 they did have names like that, but just a wee willy winky, uh, Luke Warm. Mm-hmm. But they didn't let him talk. Right. All they let him do is play the music. At the top of the hour, they had a pre-recorded, you know, station identification. Yeah, right. I said, well, that doesn't sound like very entertaining radio, not to let the guy talk middays. So I said, uh, coming out of this break, I want you to talk. You know, just do He sounded fine. Yeah. I said, okay, from now on, you talk. Guess who owns that radio station? He does. <laughs> he now owns that radio station ah. and several others. And we became kind of a partners buying, way buying, and selling radio stations, which okay. was kind of fun. I like that. That's how I financed my trip to Israel in uh, 1999 by uh, selling radio stations. <laughs> there was, I think it was a Spanish language station in Yakima, something like that. It was great fun. So, so um, yes. So what what leads you to the saint? Ah, well, I was 16 years old, minding my own business in. Wahai, Walla Walla High School. Mm, I bet out that, but go on. Yes. Uh, my friend David Benfield uh, lends me a book entitled uh, The Saint in New York. He said, read this. Tell me what you think. I read it. I said, oh, that was entertaining. He says, well, I got one I think that's more entertaining. It's called Saint's Getaway. Well, I read that one, and I thought it was hysterically clever. Very clever. It was almost like a satire on action-adventure books. Right. Because it was written in two styles simultaneously. One would always start off in a style that would appeal tremendously to any 16-year-old boy. I mean, just bam, right off the bat, incredible action. There's one story uh, in the book, The Saint vs. Scotland Yard, that starts off with a scream. The scream peals through the night where the saint has actually been at a wild party and he doesn't want to drive, so he's asleep on the hood of his giant uh, ah, car. So it's the car, it's the yeah, horn. Yeah. And no, it's not the one. It's actually it is a man screaming. That wakes him up. And it's pitch black darkness. Right? And he hears this guy, someone running through the woods. And again, another set up, you know, chasing him. And through the clearing, out comes this guy. He's obviously been beaten. His clothes torn. He just looks like walking death. And then running up behind him, you know, to grab him, is this giant African guy. Wearing only a loincloth. And this is in England, you know, <laughs> on the countryside. What is this, you know, giant African wearing only a loincloth doing, you know, coming out of the mist, chasing this beaten man? So the saint gets off the hood of his car, walks over in front of the giant African in the loincloth and says, Good morning! And then proceeds to kick him in the solar plexus. <laughs> now, right away, you're off to a great start for a 16-year-old boy. Then suddenly the style changes. And the vocabulary used by the author goes into the stratosphere. You need to get out your dictionary to follow what happens next. So he was quite erudite? Yes, and more erudite than erudite. But he wasn't vociferous. Uh, no, but uh, he was uh, both prolix. Prolix? Oh, he was prolix. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right, look those up, kids. <laughs> well, isn't that a famous watch? <laughs> yes, it is. It, uh, Prolix takes a look at it and keeps on ticking. <laughs> That's John Cameron Swayze. Yeah. I was watching tonight. He lost the watch, by the way. He progresses. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, I, yes, he did those things live. Did live. It was on the Steve Allen Show, and he put the Timex watch on the 
propeller of an outboard motor. And off it went. <laughs> and told it, you don't know where it went. And it went into, put it in the water, and he tunes it on. And while it goes for like 45 seconds, he's giving the sales pitch. And he stops one and says, well, let's take a look at the Timex. He pulls the, you know, the outboard motor up. No watch. And he, and he ad-libs beautifully. He takes off his jacket, rolls up his sleeve, and puts it in the tank, looking for the watch. Meanwhile, time is clicking away. <laughs> and he finally looks up and says, well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure wherever it is, it's still ticking. <laughs> Figured out where it went. Is it came off of the propeller blades and got sucked into, you know, there's a... Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sucks the... It, it went right. inside the motor, or the outboard motor, and that's why you couldn't find it. Yeah. And then the other one that was great was, the, uh, what was her name, Betty Furness or something? Trying to open the Amanda refrigerator and she couldn't get the door open on my TV. <laughs> right as we see the... I, I remember uh, uh, Ed McMahon doing uh, dog food commercials on the Tonight Show yes. live. Yeah. And he, he you know, he's, the dogs are supposed to eat, mm-hmm. but he can't get the dogs Jeez, to eat. He eats his dog. He can't get the dogs to eat, so Carson comes over as a dog. And he <laughs> he eats the dog food. The food. <laughs> no, that was the best. I remember that one, Matt? That was the best. I wonder, what's his name, uh... Through the tomahawk and hit the drawing. In the yeah, well, that was Jan- that was Jan- uh, Arness, and that was. Uh... That was not Jan- No, no, it was Fess Fe- Parker. No, it was the guy who played Chingus Cook. It's a guy. It's a guy who's about a hundred years old now. Who I I, I won on the show, and uh, he doesn't do many radio interviews. Uh, and damn it, I can't think of. His I name. can see him in my mind's eye. He's a singer. And, uh, uh, Ed, Ed Ames. Ed Ames. How do you like that? Yeah, huh? He's a good guy, but what makes that bit work? Carson stopping him. Yes, Carson stops him. He was he was Ed Ames was heading over to pull, pull that out. out. <laughs> Carson knows funny, stops him. Yeah, yeah. And and then he does the Moyle joke. <laughs> yeah, but he also does a joke before that that you never see. Huh. There's a joke, and I forget what it is, but there is a classic friggin' joke even before that. You know, he does, yeah, he does the, I didn't even know you were Jewish. Yeah. He does, he does another one, though, too. But, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, was it Josh Boy sitting there petting a cat? No, that never happened. That never happened? Is that that's a rumor? No. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, that that was the, that's fiction. Fiction, but it sounds good. That we all thought happened. But yeah. it, was, it was Jane Fonda right. recounting the story, story on the show. When it never happened in the first so place. because of the recounting, me included as a kid, yeah. it truly yeah. happened. Yeah, the show your son had seen Carson's that. response was, no, I believe I would remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I believe I would. But because of that, it's like mass hypno- yeah. hypnosis. Yeah. We all believe mm. we saw that happen. Yeah. yeah. Um, There's a power of suggestion. Um, I'm very suggestible um, myself. Nine to five. Um, Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton was on. And he says, you know, so everyone wants to know. Yeah. And she goes, yeah, these things are real. They're mine. Yeah. And he says, I, I, I'd give a month's pay to peek. <laughs> I'd give a year's pay to take a peek. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, my, know, daughter think, once, my daughter asked, how did Dolly Parton's breasts get so huge? And someone said to her, you know, she was quite little at this time, said, she was born that way. You just see the strange look on my daughter's face as she's visualizing a baby with his enormous <laughs> Anyway, back to the exciting story. Uh, what were you asking? So you, uh, so you, you're hooked on the same as a kid. How do you get into it as an adult? 
uh, I kept reading the books. In fact, I collected all the books. Then I discovered there were some movies starring George Saunders, Hugh Sinclair, etc. They right. were made by RKO. Uh, and then at the same time, the uh, same TV series with Roger Moore came mm-hmm. out. And as I think I may have mentioned on the show before, but we have so many new listeners. Uh, I took my son to the video store one day. And he, he selected three Roger Moore James Bond movies. We came home, and the light is blinking on the answering machine. So with these tapes in his hand, he walks over and presses the play button. And guess who had called? Roger. Roger Moore. Listen, this is Roger Moore calling for Burl Bear. Uh, you know, call me back and send such such a number. My son's eyeballed. <laughs> he's looking at the tapes. He's looking at the answering machine. It's the only time Roger Moore ever called me. I called him back and got his son, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, Roger had already gone to the airport to fly back to England, so we missed our uh-huh. little connection there. But that, it was worth it just to see the look on my son's face when Roger Moore called the house. <laughs> my, uh, my uncle, I had an uncle that was uh, CPA to the stars, among others. Uh, among others? Um, well, yeah, yeah. Well, we're not going to discuss the others. Oh, but, uh, it was probably... Uh, I was over at the house with the rest of the family for uh, whatever Jewish holiday it was. Yeah. And I just come out of the, the guest bathroom, which, is, which was right in front of where the phone and the note station was. And the phone rings, so I pick it up. And I, hello, Boyer Residence. And this voice says, hi, this is... Uh, um, oh, Dr. Seuss. No. Um, <laughs> is he bigger than Red Bar? Uh, this is... Uh, uh, USO, uh, but this, this is Bob, Bob Hope. Hope. This is Bob Hope. And when I see you around, and I go, Bob Hope. Yeah, right. Click. Oh, the same thing, exact same thing happened at my sister's house. Bob Hope called your sister? Uh, actually, it was uh, Bob Hope did call because his wife was visiting my sister. Oh. And the guy doing some construction or remodeling in the living room was expecting a call when the phone rang. He answered it instead of my sister. And the guy says, uh, this is Bob Hope. He goes, yeah, I'm Bing Crosby. and hung up on him. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, to, I told uh, one of my cousins, I said, some idiot pretending to be Bob Hope just called. And they turned ashen white. And you're like, you are pretending? <laughs> yeah, well, Eli called him right back. It was okay. Yeah, um, you so, you, um, so there I was. So, so I'm trying to get to, you have, this tr- you have this fascination with the material. How did you get involved professionally? Okay, uh... There was a magazine called uh, Video Review. Uh-huh. I think it probably still exists. Who was the review? Never heard of it, but uh, go on. Then there's another one called Video Magazine, very similar. And uh, they would have episode guides to TV shows, things such as that. And uh, I wrote a proposal for the video magazine to do an article about the Saint, the, the Saint things that were available on video, old Saint movies, etc. My nephew, Lee Goldberg, New York Times best-selling author. At that time, wasn't a New York Times best-selling author, but he had uh, a book out called uh, from McFarland Publishing, the Complete Encyclopedia of Unsold Television Pilots. I was like that, and he uh, revised my proposal to be a complete book about all the incarnations of the saints. Sent it to McFarland Publishing without my knowledge, ah. and on the first Saturday after the Fourth of July. In about uh, 1990, 1989, I show up at Loon Lake, Washington to go fishing with my dad. And he goes, oh, you got a letter here. It came to the house in Walla Walla from uh, some publishing company. And I opened it up, and it was a contract for the book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, it was all news to me. 
Uh, I signed the contract, and then I wrote the book. Well, Leslie Charteris, the guy who created the saint, right. was still alive over in England. And I wrote him a letter and asked if he'd uh, help me write a book. <laughs> and he said, no. He says, I'm always being asked, you know, for this. People are going to write a book about the history of the saint. And they never do it, and I don't cooperate, but good luck. Well, I, uh, but he gave me some suggestions of other people to talk to. Well, I'm fairly tenacious, and I wound up getting all the movers, shakers, Baptists, and Quakers lined up. Right. And uh, Any druids? Uh, yeah. <laughs> These aren't the droids you want. <laughs> and uh, I actually wrote the book. And uh, Charteris agreed to read the final manuscript and correct any errors of fact, mm -hmm. which he did. And he sent me the most wonderful letter when the book was done, saying that he was uh, uh, rather, I don't know, kind of stunned or whatever to to be the subject of such a magnum opus when he thought it was a moss-covered monument. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'm left with the two most trite, numbling words in my vocabulary. Thank you. I hope to say them to you in person. So I flew over to England, and I had lunch with Leslie Charteris and his lovely wife, Eddie nice. Dickerson, uh, who was kind of his assistant in running the same. Did you bring any, uh, any of the books for him to autograph? Of course. You think I'm a total idiot? Well, possibly. <laughs> possibly. Uh, Dan Bodenheimer, who's also a big St. fan, went over to England the same time I did. And he brought with him a first edition copy of the very first St. book, which is called The St. Meets the Tiger, or Meet the Tiger, which was the Charteris wrote when he was like 19 years old. And it's, it's not that good a book. I mean, I guess for 19 and 1927, it's a good book. What Dan paid to buy the book was more money than Charteris was paid for writing it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I got autographed copies of my own book by him, you know, him signing the, the hardback oh. and all that. So I have a copy of my book signed by him. And uh, uh, something special happened uh, after the publication of your book. Yes, people bought it, which is, they still do, by the way. I get royalty checks uh, right. twice a year. People still are crazy enough to buy right. that book. Uh, it won the uh, Edgar Award for the Mystery Writers of America. And now we know why we call Burl Bear the award-winning author. Well, yes, that makes me an award-winning author. Well, boy, and if I hadn't won that, we wouldn't be saying that. <laughs> but they can't take that away from you. You know who else won the, that, that same award a few years later? Quentin Tarantino. Uh, Agatha Christie won it. Uh, Quentin, won it. What did Quentin win it for? Uh, he won it for Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction? That's interesting. A movie winning that. Yeah, well, you can. They have classifications for uh, print, uh, television, and film. Right. My nephew's been nominated several times, but he hasn't snagged snagged one yet. Um, has, kind of has, has, his, uh, has his frequent co-author, um, who wrote the uh, um, Janet Ivanovich. Yeah, Janet Ivanovich. Yeah, we learned a great lesson from her that I haven't learned yet. <laughs> Which less is more. Less is more. Uh, talk about economical prose. I mean, it's slick. I mean, you know, moves great. And sentences are short. The scriptures are short. It moves real well. And and you still and you still have a complete sense of what's going on in the yes, environment. Yes. Yeah. Uh, less is more. I was came from just the opposite school of writing because I. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit flowery also. Well, I'm not saying that I'm flowery. I'm just a verbose and prolix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and part of that comes from. Uh, Charters' style in the St. Nellis. I already mentioned how when the saint kicks the giant black guy in the loincloth. Yes. The style changes. And all of a sudden, you know, and then, you know, something happened, blah, blah, blah. 
Now, they could have discussed the proper seating arrangements for social events, and he goes, oh, all these things have nothing to do with the action sequence, using all these big words, very flowery, absurd, satirical, making a joke out of the whole thing. And it says, those were the last pleasant words the saints said that morning. And then it goes right back into the action. And as a result of that style, not only did you have the 16-year-old boys crazy about this crap, right? And and girls as well. Uh, But adults found that hysterical. And so it was selling equally well with youngsters and with more sophisticated adults. Kind of like a... um, um, what was that puppet show that used to be on TV? Beanie and Cecil. <coughs> where the kids hey, Bob, plant that cartoon. Yeah. Uh, although they used to do it, actually had uh, marionettes. I ate one yet. Oh, well, that, no, that was the Thunderbirds. Well, no, oh. we were talking earlier. Earlier. I'm older than you are. Oh, before that. Yeah. Because I was a big Thunderbird fan. I bet you were. Mm-hmm. Did they just have where they, was a still picture and just their lips moved? Like Crash Car? That was, yeah. Not <laughs> awful. Yeah. World's cheapest animation. <laughs> now they have them done in Japan. Yeah, that was uh, they. Clutch Cargo was uh, a a, a, a just a, a a throwaway in Pulp Fiction. You know when Christopher Walken is giving uh, young Bruce Willis the watch. Mm. He's watching that show. Well, good for him. I remember that? Yeah, I know the uh, uh, what do we call those? Uh, the minions were watching the Saint on TV in one of the <laughs> those uh, movies that they did. Well, the guy is a bad guy. Anyway, sort of to, to answer your question, aside from the saint, uh, uh, in the 1970, I think it was 1970, about there, uh, my buddy Terry McManus wanted to do a radio commercial for an album of music from the Alfred Hitchcock films, including the theme from Psycho, North by Northwest, and all that. Okay. So we wrote and produced uh, this radio commercial for an album of music from the Hitchcock films. And sent it to London Records. Say, hey, what do you think about this? They loved it. They paid us. They ran it and it helped sell this uh, soundtrack album incredibly well. So we started a business that specialized in entertainment advertising. And uh, we did uh, commercials for the record labels, for Capital and uh, all, you know, all of them would hire us. And then we started doing concerts. You know, not doing the concerts, but advertising for the concerts. Right. Say, like Bob Dylan would go on a 40-city tour. We'd do commercials for all 40 cities. Uh, Neiman and Clay, anybody, any star you can think of, we did uh, all the show, rock shows in Las Vegas and uh, uh, motion picture trailers and that sort of thing, which was a, a great fun. And uh, that was uh, successful. I said, well, so far I've done radio. I've done television. I got a lot of beginning of the cable television advertising franchise for uh, Eastern Washington, except for Spokane. That was dandy. Sold that for big bucks. <laughs> he retired early. My friend Bill Strom got me a T-shirt that said, I used to be Burl Bear. <laughs> that really hurt. Because uh, I wasn't doing anything except resting on my laurels and watering my legend and living off the money I'd made. Which, which unfortunately, you don't have anymore. Unfortunately. I'm about to get more, though. Um, so let's, uh, let's fast forward uh, a week. Yeah. So <clears throat> what makes you decide... To take on the totally unrewarding and <laughs> quite arduous true crime uh, genre. I didn't intend to do it. Well, <laughs> yeah, most people stumble into something. As I fell into it like a clean kid into a coal chute. 
There I was in Walla Walla, Washington, uh-huh. minding my own business. Uh, yeah, you say. And I get a telephone call on a Sunday night from, of all people, the bass player for uh, the Whalers, I think. Not the, not the uh, Rastafarian ones, but the Seattle Northwest. Okay. Uh, saying, Burl, this is so-and-so, his name escapes me at the moment. It's very embarrassing to suddenly not make able to remember his name. Uh, he says, would you be interested in writing a book? He says, you were recommended, I think, by Ann Rule. Uh, we had talked to her about writing this book, and she was too busy, but she suggested you. Why she suggested me, I don't know. Uh, but I said, okay. <laughs> Maybe she, uh, read my same book. I don't know. Uh, and it was the story of Phil Champagne. Who, uh, you know, uh, and and as tradition on this show, a, a sh- shameless plug for Burl, the counterfeit resurrection of Bill Champagne. Champagne. Yeah. Who, who, when asked uh, if they wanted to do, uh, if they wanted to change some s- facts about the uh, movie, he said, "I don't care if you make me a cartoon mouse. Just write me a check." <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so do I. I just love that. That was Anthony Spinner asked that question. Uh, I went. He was a. Uh, a producer on Return of the Saint, as a matter of fact. So Ian Ogilvie, who's been a guest here on our show a couple of times. Yes, he has. Guy. Nice guy. Yeah, real nice guy. Uh, he kind of got screwed financially on Return of the Saint, but uh, he's still famous for it. In any event, I go to Anthony Spinner's office, and he's out in his car smoking dope, which I probably wouldn't have known, except he's wearing a big, uh, like, wool sweater, which soaked up all the cannabis. So when he comes back into the room with his eyeballs spinning in his sockets, I could get high just sniffing his sweater. <laughs> and so I give him the whole pitch. He goes, would Phil mind if we made Barb's brother a private eye? I mean, he starts changing everything. <laughs> yeah, Phil doesn't care if you make him a cartoon mouse. <laughs> as long as you write him a check. Well, he didn't write him a check. And writes, the rights on that has been option for a film too many times, and it hasn't happened yet. There was a song written uh, about it called The Battle of Phil's Champagne. Right. And yeah, we, uh, we, we had that info here. Yeah. We actually had uh, Phil on the show. Who's that? We had him on the show before Phil, he passed Phil Champagne, away. yes. <laughs> Phil Champagne, yeah. Well, I, I don't think I was honest with you about everything. <laughs> Do you think I don't know that, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> I always did want to be a counterfeiter. Yeah, I kind of thought that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, uh, did you ever ask Ann uh, why she recommended you? I didn't have the nerve to do that in case it was a mistake, but we had a wonderful lunch together The uh, when I won the Edgar, about the day before. We were both in New York City. Okay, so you did meet the lady. Oh, Ann Rule? Yeah. Oh, yes. She just uh, she talked like this, bro. I just think you're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I'll tell you, we just had this little feud going on with her, was the greatest true crime writer of all time was Jack Olson. Wasn't, Jack- he, uh, wasn't he Superman's? No, no, that's Jimmy Olsen, Superman's pal. No, okay. Jack Olson is a uh, uh, multi-Edgar winner, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, brilliant guy, uh, fantastic writer. I, I told him one day, we became good friends, we talk on the phone a lot, uh, he was a great mentor, and I read the, the opening page of his book, Salt of the Earth. It was so well written, so brilliantly constructed, that I wanted to take my word processor and throw it in the ocean because <laughs> I could never be that good. I figured, I'm just going to give up now. <laughs> and I told him that and he laughed. He thought that was really funny because he always put his endorsement on the cover of my books. 
say nice things about me. And the reason for that, as he told me, was because of Man Overboard, which was the only book of mine he ever read. He said, I don't need to read the others, the ones since then. He says, that one was enough for me. He says, you did the two things I like. He says, it has strong journalistic ethics, strong journal, you know, real journalism, mm -hmm. research, ethics, and he said, stylistically, I loved it. So that was the two things that, you know, after that, I was, I could do no wrong in his, uh, in his book, shall we say. Okay. So uh, you, uh, you're asked to do this from the bass player. Yeah, so I wrote that book. Well, like you, no. what did you do first? I said, yeah, I'll do that. Well, but, <laughs> uh, how did you start the process? I mean, this, you're new to the genre. What did you, what did you do first? Uh, I said, well, I asked him the same question. You know, what, who can you give me here? You know, he says, well, we can give you Phil Champagne. We can give you his brothers. We can give you the uh, guy who sold the insurance policy. Because Phil Champagne, for those of you who don't know, 1982, Phil Champagne died in a tragic boating accident off Lopez Island. He was survived by one ex-wife. Uh, two despondent brothers, uh, ex, uh, one uh, wife, ex-wife, whatever, soon-to-be ex-wife. Phil didn't know he was dead until he read it in the newspaper. All things considered, he took it rather well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he'd fallen off a boat, fallen off his brother's fishing boat, and the Coast Guard searched for the body for 13 hours, didn't find it. And that's because he was fished out of the water by an illegal fisherman who wouldn't take him to the hospital because he afraid he'd get busted for being an illegal fisherman. Uh -huh. So he, and Phil had hypothermia and everything by this point. So uh, he's at the uh, fisherman's cabin for a couple of days, and when he's strong enough to uh, get drop kicked out of there, it says in the paper that he's dead. You know, he died. This is a hell of a deal, because he's going through a bad divorce. <laughs> so he figures, this is my way out. So he gets hold of his best friend in Portland, Meets him uh, at the Benson Hotel or whatever. Buddy gives him maybe $1,500. He says, be careful, Phil. He says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a free man now. I'm going to change my, you know, his ID. If you get fake ID, become a new person. And he does. Becomes several new people. <laughs> Winds up uh, pulling tens of thousands of dollars out of some drug lord's lair. <laughs> and and uh, comes back to Washington State with a new name, a new wife. And then he's arrested. <laughs> and and how how did they they catch on or find him? Well, uh, he was he wanted to uh, get a what do you call it? Um, uh, I can't think of it. Franchise for some legal thing, but he needed a couple grand. So he figured he'd make some phony bills. And uh, so he tried to counterfeit U.S. currency. Yes, uh, and he did such a good job. And most of the bills made it all the way to the Federal Reserve Bank before they were caught. But some of the first efforts weren't that good. And he, uh, one of the bills he had that wasn't that good, he tried to use to pay for a pancake breakfast in Ritzville, Washington, on the way to Seattle, Bellevue, to, to cash some of these bills. And if they'd had enough cash in the cash register to cash that $100 bill, he would have got away with it. But because the manager had to go open the safe, he had that bill in his hand long enough to figure out there was something wrong with it. Now, you just can't call the cops and say, I got a counterfeit bill, because the cops aren't qualified to know whether you're full of crap or not. You have to call the United States Secret Service, and you have to wait for the United States Secret Service to show up. Ah. Well, they do, and it was Phil's wife who passed the bill 
So she's the one who's taken away in handcuffs. <laughs> but not Phil. Phil does not look like he belongs with this woman and her son. They look like, you know, Eastern Washington people. He's dressed to the nines, has a slight British accent, and looks like Ronald Coleman, you know, <laughs> or George Saunders. Does not fit with these people at all. And so they, uh, Lyle Workman, the Secret Service agent, says to, uh, supposed to ask Phil some questions. I'd love to help you, gentlemen, but I'm, I'm constrained by previous commitments to make any comment on the situation. <laughs> so they have to let him go. But they shattered him, right? And they followed him, followed everything he could. And they figured out that the name he was using, Harold Stegman, <laughs> and Harold Stegman had been dead for a long time. He died as a child <laughs> the same year that uh, Phil was born. His ID then was bogus. Uh, they didn't know who he was. But they found the counterfeiting stuff and all that. Uh, and then it's the, the day his wife goes to trial, the Secret Service tells her, we found out your husband's real name. She goes, what do you mean? <laughs> she didn't know who he was. No, they, got, they hadn't been married yet, but they quickly got married so she couldn't testify against him. Well, uh, she could testify. She just can't be compelled to yes. testify. All right, so um, you're, you're, you're looking at writing a book, uh, a true crime book. Um, did you ask anyone in the, in the industry for some advice on how you do it? Uh, yeah, the best advice that I got as far as writing true crime came from Gary C. King, who's a very well-known true crime writer. We've had him on the show. In fact, I recently posted uh, on our uh, Anchor FM site and iTunes, etc., the interview with Gary C. King when he was on our show. Uh, he said, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, because the true crime books, and this was after a man overboard, when I signed a contract with Kensington Publishing Group, which is Pinnacle True Crime, right. and they're all real gruesome cases, you know, axe murders, murdered children, God knows all sorts of horrible yeah. things. You know, yeah. missing dirt bikes. Yeah, yeah, kid never got the dirt bike. <laughs> uh, it's all that kind of stuff. And very painful, very traumatic stories. He says, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, because the stories are devastating. You have to talk to the families of these horrible losses. It's going to be very, it's very emotionally draining to write right. those kind of true crime books. It's almost like you have to be like a, a policeman or an EMT where you... Disassociate yeah. from the Cause event. It, yeah, because if you get emotionally, I mean, then you get devastated because the crimes are so horrible. Uh, you have to kind of put up a wall there to right. protect yourself. And, you know, being on the show now for almost six years. Really? Yeah, time goes by so quickly when you're having fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of them, some of the uh, material is just gut wrenching. Oh, especially the first one I did for uh, a serious true crime book, which is Murder in the Family, which is my uh, New York Times bestseller. No one was prepared for that. My first serious true crime book, I mean, Man Overboard was funny, but this is serious. Murder in the Family for uh, Pinnacle. Immediately went to the New York Times bestseller list, which totally stunned everybody because they weren't prepared for that. So it hits the New York Times bestseller list, we ran out of books. <laughs> so it was New York Times bestseller for a week, they ran out of books. But uh, well, they can't take that away from you, you know that. No. Uh, so what I'm, what that I'm was a difficult book to write because you had a woman and two little kids brutally murdered. Yeah. So was, what I'm trying to get to is the writing process. Uh, uh, so you 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 start with. 
the, do you start with the interviews or do you well, do, that's the thing do, you is, do background will research you get, first? Will you get cooperation? If you can't get cooperation to do the book, yeah. you can, how are you going to do the book? Right. You have to be able to uh, not only get law enforcement and prosecutors and defense attorneys on board with you to tell the story, and the laws have to be said. So there's a Freedom of Information Act. I'll give you an example. In virtually any state, if I want a police report on a crime, because if the police, uh, it's, you know, what's this? it's a socialist organization. Our taxes pay for it. Anything your taxes pay for is socialist. So if you want a police report, you're entitled to it because your taxes paid for it. So you say, I have a request. I would like this police report. And they say, okay, and they vet it and they send it to you, except in some places, such as Kansas, where if you request a police report, you get the cover page. That's it. Anything else is at the discretion of the chief of police, what he wants to give you. And it really varies also in terms of cost of research. When I went to Alaska to research murder in the family, the uh, prosecutors uh, were wonderful. And they gave me everything. And I needed copies, like Xerox, you know, copies of uh, all sorts of stuff. Some people want to charge you $5 a page for trial transcripts. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's, a, it's just a, uh, a poison pill to keep the, uh, you know, the looky-loos away. Well, it made it, make it impossible to do research because you don't get a research budget. You can't pay $5 a page. And that, you know, you could end up paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. That's right. And, and which you can't, which I can't, right? Yeah. So fortunately, when I'm in Alaska, the guy, the, uh, the guy in charge of the printing of this stuff says, come in the back room, pulls out a ream of paper, puts it in the copy machine, boom, 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 boom. Used up an entire room of paper says, I see that'll be twelve dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> Thank God for guys like him. I when I wrote uh, Headshot, which was the one after that, I being as there were two mistrials and appeals to the state supreme court, I had to go to the uh, Washington State Supreme Court and they have like storage lockers full of trial transcripts, lawyers' documents, you know. And I said, I need some copies of it. What do you want copies of it in regards to this case? And I said, absolutely everything. And they just looked at me with displeasure. No one has ever asked for absolutely everything. I said, I want absolutely everything. And we don't know what to charge you for absolutely everything. So, well, I'll take it. Someday you'll figure it out. And I <laughs> came with a minivan. Because you couldn't put it in your car. It was boxes, 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 boxes. Right. Loaded up this van full of all of copies of everything they had from the uh, state Supreme Court and drove away. And that was, well, statute of limitations is up on that crime. <laughs> They're not coming after me. I never get a bill. <laughs> Which was, but you have to have the cooperation. Families sometimes will cooperate. Uh, when I wrote Broken Doll about the tragic murder of little Roxanne Doll, her family, her, her mom and dad, were incredibly cooperative. I mean, they would give me every bit of information they possibly could about the kid. Even the pictures of the body, it was, it was horrible. Uh, the detective, uh, Lloyd Herndon, who solved the, solved the case, he was very, very cooperative. Uh, 
But then I've had situations where the family is not cooperative. In fact, threaten me, call me up, and don't you, you have, don't have a permission to write about this. And I had one, I won't mention who the people were, where incest was so rampant in the family that you would need a chart and a graph to keep track of who's doing who. Uh, I couldn't mention that in the book <laughs> because they were major, you know, but, uh, and then you had situations where, it also in that, where there were his two brothers who gave me tons and tons and tons of interviews and information, and I sent them release forms saying, you know, we have been interviewed by Pearl Bear, we're not charging him any money, because you don't have any money for that sort of stuff. He said, no, we want money. I said, there is no money. There's no research budget, right? I have no money to give you. Well, in that case, you can't quote us. So, you know, try to extort me. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, their sister was a much kinder soul. And she could always say, whatever they said to you, say I said it. And I'll sign the form. <laughs> because she was kind of irked at her brothers for that. So thank God for her. Uh, but I've had situations where I, I go to do a book and uh, there's just no cooperation. Or you get tons of cooperation and the publisher goes, eh, I don't know about that one. So what I would do when I was under contract to Kensington, yeah, same thing, uh, and I'm not under contract to Wild Blue, but I have a fantastic relationship with them. I'm under contract right now because I just signed a new book contract. But uh, I would send to my editor, Karen Haas, who is an absolutely fantastic editor. She's retired now, unfortunately. She hung up her blue pencil. Uh, and I'd say, okay, I, I wouldn't have to give formal proposals. i just call her on the phone. Say, okay, I got this case here where... Uh, Psychiatrist is poking his patient and then uh, he murders her because he didn't want people to find out he's having sex with her. Then we got this one where a dog trainer does this, we got that, and then we got this one. She said, Oh, do that one. I got a letter from uh, Michaela Hamilton, who was executive editor at Kensington. I believe it was from her, where she says, The market has changed. Uh, we, most of your books have been about blue collar families and blue collar murderers. Well, big as we're in a recession now, people want to read books about wealthy people being mad, being bad, you know, wealthy murderers, right? And she added, and if you got a wood chipper, <laughs> rich people, lots of sex, lots of drugs, murder, and preferably a wood chipper. Well, I couldn't get.